Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So how would you feel if we just got down to business today? If we can, can we dispense with the gripping introduction part of the public speaking act? Is that good with you? That's good because I don't have anything. So let's just get after it, right? So we're in the midst of a series called This Is Us, and we're looking at the core values that we embody here at First Church because we believe that these are the values that drive who we are called to be. We believe that these are the values that God is going to use to enable us to live out our mission of flooding the treasure coast with the transformational love of Jesus and that these values are how we are going to accomplish our vision of creating, equipping, and mobilizing 610 disciples by 2030 so that Heaven and earth collide on the treasure coast. So you might be thinking, why 610? Well, because in Matthew 610, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as people who follow Jesus, we believe in this crazy idea called the incarnation. Which means that heaven and earth, collided in the person of Jesus Christ, God and human coexisting in the same space, not just in the same space, but in the same body. And we believe that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. And we believe that that same Spirit has come to live in and amongst God's people, heaven and earth, God and human coexisting in the same space. That means that we are, you and me, each and every one of us, a place where heaven and earth collide. You never thought about it that way before, did you? But every single time that we gather, every single time that we speak life, into someone's heart, every time that we comfort the afflicted, every single time that we invest in someone else's life, we are engaged in the collision of heaven and earth. And I say all of this because I want you to understand that all of this language of heaven and earth colliding is not just something that we threw in there to make it sound idealistic and Christian-y. This is literally what Jesus and the church are in the business of doing and have been in the business of doing for ages. 
And actually, Jesus and the church weren't the first to do it. It's actually a continuation of what God has been doing since the very beginning of time. See, way back in the beginning of things, when God had finished creating the earth, God created a place called Eden. And in Eden, God planted a garden. Eden was the first place where heaven and earth met. God stooped down and created humans out of the dust of the earth, breathed life into them, and then placed them in Eden. And in Eden, God met with them, and God walked with them. Eden was filled with the presence of God and the presence of humans. Eden was filled with the presence of heaven right there on earth. But as you may know, spoiler alert, page two of the Bible, page three of the Bible, <laughs> things didn't really stay that way for very long. Human disobedience caused heaven and earth to separate. And there's an irreconcilable difference that is caused when a creation rebels against its creator. But wouldn't you know that God never stopped trying to reconcile it anyway? And so through a series uh, of interactions on mountaintops and high places, through a place called a tabernacle and then a place called the temple, in Israel, God came to earth. God met with humans in an attempt to mold them into a society that more closely reflected heaven on earth. But that plan was only temporary. God would once again come to earth and walk with people in the form of a baby born in a manger. God became the space where heaven and earth truly met once again. This baby, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ and the Messiah of Israel, this boy would grow into a man and begin a life of missional outreach to the world to bring heaven and earth together. And that is our core value for today. We've talked about passionate worship. We've talked about faithful development. Pastor Jeff came in and mercifully talked to you about radical generosity. Thank you, Jeff. And today we land on our fourth core value, missional outreach. Missional outreach is what separates the church from the rest of the pack of people in this world who seek to do good. Missional outreach is a distinctly Christian value because it focuses on helping and reaching those in need with the express mission of seeing transformation in Christ. We want lives to be changed physically and spiritually. 
Christ came to heal mind, body, and spirit. Christ came to bring holistic help to those in need. And as the living and breathing body image of Christ on this earth, that's what we've been called to do as well. So there's a lot of stories about Jesus' ministerial work, four whole books filled with them, which makes it kind of hard to choose one when you're trying to preach a sermon about missional outreach. I could just tell you to just go read the Gospels, which I actually have. But one story in particular sticks out to me when I think about this whole business of missional outreach as an extension of God's work all the way back in creation. And so our, our scripture is going to come from the Gospel of John, and, and this is what's happening as a setup. Like Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's been uh, just, you know, garnering a lot of negative attention from religious elites, as he tended to do. Because, you know, it's kind of weird when someone walks up and says, hi, nice to meet you, I am God. Yeah. Right? Can't really fault them. <laughs> but after really getting under some people's skin, uh, he goes and takes uh, a walk break through Jerusalem. And this is what he finds in chapter 9. It says, as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. And so his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go and wash in the pool of Shiloh, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. And so the first thing that we need to understand here is... Uh, that in the ancient world, in Jesus' world, those who are handicapped were not viewed with the same eyes that we view persons with limited ability today. In today's world, it's common practice for us to make the world around us accessible and accommodating to those who are handicapped. But in Jesus' world, those with limited ability, with birth defects, or with incurable diseases were simply cast off. They were seen as unclean or even cursed. And that's the kind of thinking that we encounter when we're reading John chapter 9. We're, we're introduced to this man who's been blind since the day he was born. He spent his entire adult life at the mercy of strangers, hoping that they might offer him food or money, anything that he needs to survive. And so the disciples, immediately upon seeing him, are they're just wondering why he's blind. And they're trying to make sense out of human suffering, just like you and I do every single day when we drive down the road, right? And so they ask Jesus, was it him or was it his parents who sinned? I mean, he's been born from birth, so I don't think it was him, but, you know, 
Just wondering. And this seems like a really insensitive way of framing the question, right? Like we wouldn't walk around and do that today. But you got to remember that the disciples are just working with the toolbox that they have. What they understand theologically is that people who are disabled are disabled because they sinned. Which honestly is sometimes not that far off, right? Even in today's world, sometimes our physical bodies fail because we have not cared for them. Sometimes it's because we have been reckless. We've engaged in dangerous behavior. So don't get your noses all up in the air at the disciples, all right? They're trying to understand the world. They've got questions, and lucky for them, look who's at their side. The all-knowing God. You'd ask too. Jesus' response, though, is like, you know, it's Jesus. It's beautifully cryptic, right? Jesus is like, there's not sin involved in this man's infirmity. There's only the divine plan of God, which is to reveal to the world how wonderful God is. So what Jesus is communicating is that God overcomes suffering and that God's going to overcome this man's impairment. The man is born blind because the world is not perfect because the human body is frail. But God has known from the moment of this man's birth that someday he would be restored, that the broken reality of his humanity would be overturned. And in that moment, Jesus does something that harkens back to the opening pages of the Bible. He stoops down and he picks up dust, just as God did when creating Adam. And he spits or breathes life onto it. And then he uses it to restore the man's sight, to recreate his eyes. In a moment's time, Jesus' outstretched hands have completely transformed this man's life. They have given him a potential that he never could have realized without the power of Christ. In this moment, heaven and earth have collided for this man. His lifelong prayer has been answered and he's been set free for joyful and obedient living. But let's see what happens next. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered them. The man called Jesus made mud. He spread it on my eyes and he said to me, go to Shalom and wash. And then I went and I washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So this man is walking along in his neighborhood, and no one can believe the transformation, right? No one can wrap their minds around how this man, who was poor and begging for years on years on years, 
could possibly be walking in front of him. And they're like, is it, is, it, is it him? It can't be. Look, he can see. And he's like, no, it's me, friends. It's me. I met Jesus. And now I can see. I met Jesus. I was blind, but now I see. Like the old hymn, right? Amazing Grace. You see, this is really the goal of missional outreach, to give sight to the blind. Maybe for us, not literal sight to the literal blind, but missional outreach is the means by which we offer spiritual and transformational light to those in dark places. It's how we give people a vision of who they could become if they simply stretched out their hand to embrace the love of Christ. Missional outreach is how we plant seeds. It's it's how we say to people, you matter. It's how we often show people that they are worth so much more than the lot that life has handed to them. It's how we help people recognize the fact that they can and should take a leap of faith to embrace the transformed life. And the thing with missional outreach is that it comes with a lot of disappointment. We're talking about humans here. A lot of the time, people don't see the value in what we have to offer them. They want the physical help, but they don't want the spiritual or the emotional help, at least not right now. They want to come and they want to take a shower and get clean clothes on Saturday, but they are in a place where they are unwilling or incapable of embracing the transformational experience that Jesus offers to them. And it's sometimes really unfortunate. But the thing about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't force Jesus on anyone. Jesus doesn't force transformation on anyone. Jesus simply extends a hand knowing that it's often not grasped onto, at least not right away. But the beautiful thing about the hand of Jesus is that it's never, ever withdrawn. It's always right there waiting. And so as a church, we need to remember these realities in our efforts. See, we are going to cause heaven and earth to collide on the Treasure Coast through missional outreach, through real transformed lives, through those who say, I met Jesus, and now I can see. I met Jesus, and everything has changed for me. But in the midst of that work, we are going to face a lot of setbacks, times that are exhausting people that are exhausting, people that stretch us to the limits without ever embracing the gift that we offer. But you know, where everyone else saw a blind man, a hopeless beggar, Jesus saw the opportunity that God had been waiting for. And that's our job too to look for the opportunity, to look for that glimmer of hope, 
that sparkle in someone's eyes as you offer them the possibility of new life, of transformation, of meaningful change, of Christ in them. And in that glimmer of hope, in that soft sparkle, you are seeing the place where heaven and earth will collide. You are seeing the work that God created for you. And it's your job to then go and to take that leap of faith. You know, as Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went and he was baptized by his cousin John. Then he went into the wilderness for 40 days. And he came back going uh, throughout all the land proclaiming the good news, saying, repent, turn around. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. It's almost to join with him in that work, and he found some fishermen. But fishermen, fishing wasn't like some bougie thing that we did because we have nice boats. In Jesus' day, fishing was a dirty, nasty, stinky job. But somebody had to do it. So he called these people that no one would want to hang out with. And he didn't say, go take a shower. He said, follow me. And they followed, and they went, and they continued the work. Continued to bring new people and went and found a zealot, a, a, res, a, a rebellious revolutionary. And then they went and they found a guy who worked for the man, Rome, as a tax collector. He threw them all together in a room and said, together we will advance the kingdom of God. And on the night that he was betrayed, he brought all of these very different people some that people would like and some that people wouldn't like. He brought them to have a dinner together. He even invited the guy who was actively betraying him. He washed their feet and he offered them this meal of grace. And so he took bread and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this when you gather in remembrance of me. Now when the supper was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks to God. He said, this is my blood. This is the blood of a new covenant. It's poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this when you gather in remembrance of me. And so, holy God, we remember you. And we remember that together with all of your disciples, those that originally sat around the table and all of the disciples in the 2,000 years since then, that we have one goal, one mission, to bring heaven 
and earth to this space. And so come, pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and the cup. Make them a place where heaven and earth collide. And then send us together, bound to Christ, bound to one another, to be in mission and ministry to your world. Help us to see the opportunity. Help us to be agents of your mission to a dark and broken world. Help us to show just how glorious and wonderful this world is when heaven and earth meet. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.